Okay, if you would, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 14. In this section of Scripture, the timing of this passage is in the last day of Jesus' life prior to His crucifixion. This occurs on Thursday evening uh, prior to His being arrested later, Thursday, later in the night and then Him put on, being put on trial on Friday and being crucified on Friday. So this is the night <clears throat> before the, the crucifixion. It is this, uh, the occurrence of this passage is after the time of the Lord's uh, Supper. They're either in progress to the Mount of Olives or still uh, there, but either way, He's teaching His disciples the final instructions that He desires for them to have as they are getting ready to have His uh crucifixion, and then within the next 10 days, his ascension back to heaven. So he is planning on leaving, and he's preparing his disciples to do the work of the foundational ministry of the apostolic uh, foundation of the church. And that's what he's preparing them for. Um, I would like for you to think back, though, of what we're going to be looking at this morning is, who is this man, Jesus? And as he has been, he's been ministering to his disciples over these uh, last three years, he's been proving to them that he is the Messiah. Okay, so they, they understand, I think they understand and grasp that he is the Messiah. And I understand, I think they understand and grasp that he is from God. I don't think that at this moment they understand the depth of that relationship, of all that that means. Because it's becoming clear as they... Uh, ask questions that they don't have a true grasp of all that we have because we've been given the entirety of the Gospel of John. We've been given the entirety of the New Testament Scriptures. At this time, they are simply disciples that are following Jesus. They had the benefit of seeing Him face to face. They had the benefit of walking with Him and seeing His miracles and seeing His, um, his uh, experiencing His teaching and His miracles and all that, but they don't have the benefit of having the entirety of the Scriptures that explain all that, that we have. And so, um, as you understand that, as you, they're looking at this man, Jesus, and trying to understand all that it means for him to be who he is. So, the last, last week, uh, when we, we looked at what he said to them in the, ver in the first uh, six verses of chapter 14, we'll just review that real quickly. Jesus is saying that he's going to depart. In chapter 13, he, he, he says he's going to depart. He explains to Simon Peter that, um, that not only Simon, but all the disciples will leave him and will desert him. But then he says in verse uh, 1 through uh, 4, he says, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. So here Jesus is saying to them, I'm going back to my father's house and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm coming again for you. Now here we have the promise of the second coming of Christ. Now we're not going to get into that this morning about all the details of the second coming of Christ, but basically the second coming of Christ involves two aspects of the, that we call the second advent. It involves Jesus' coming for his bride, the church, and he's going to meet us in the air, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He's going to meet us in the air, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we which are alive and remain will be caught up together. We'll be translated. If the Lord came back today, right now, 
and he and the trumpet sounded and he called his bride to meet him in the atmospheric heavens. We would these we who are alive would be translated into a glorified state and we would be with him in heaven and then he would take us back to the new Jerusalem, the father's home, the father's abide in heaven where he's going to be until he comes again as king of kings and lord of lords to set up his kingdom. So in Revelation 19 it talks about his coming back again to the earth and that's what the angels are talking about in Acts chapter 1 when they, when they're, when they see him ascend into heaven and the angel says, um, this one you saw go into heaven will come in like manner. He come back to earth and set up his kingdom. So there's two aspects of coming. In this passage here, Jesus is speaking to the church. He's speaking to the disciples who are going to become the apostles. And he's telling his apostles, I'm coming for you to take you back to my father's house where, I have, where I'm going to prepare a place for you. And so as you understand and you go through all of Scripture and you go to the, the chapter 21, 22 of Revelation and you see the new heaven, new earth, and God's throne, God's abide, God's home, God's new Jerusalem coming down upon that new earth, I believe that that will be the eternal abode for the bride of Christ, the church saints. And outside of the new Jerusalem on that new earth will be the abode of the Israeli saints and of the Gentile saints that are not part of the church. So in the eternal order there will be a structure to where people will abide will abide even though there's interaction throughout the, the eternal order. But so Jesus is making this promise to them that I'm going to my father's house, but I'm going to prepare a place and I'm coming back for you. Now Thomas made it clear. He said, Lord, we do not worry. Where are you going? Or do we know how to get there? So Thomas is saying basically, Lord, no, we don't know where you're going. We don't know anything about this place you're talking about, and we don't know how to get there. And Jesus tells him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. So he says, basically, if you have a relationship with me, then you have a relationship with my Father, and you are going with me to my Father's house. So every, that was kind of what we covered last week. Uh, and so um, anybody have a question about that, about understanding about the promise for him to return for his bride, the church, and to take us back to heaven? It's in heaven where we have the judgment seat of Christ where because we are indwelled with the Spirit of God and part of that indwelling of the Spirit of God which was promised in Acts chapter 1, that which the, John the Baptist spoke of, the baptism of the Holy Spirit will occur on Pentecost and it will occur for the church saints and it is the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the gifting of the Holy Spirit to do the works of ministry throughout the church age. And so when we get to heaven, we will go before the judgment seat of Christ which is the accounting of how available we were for the Spirit of God to pour His giftedness through. And so whatever things that were accomplished in you through the Spirit of God working through you will be rewarded. And what was accomplished in you through your own, uh, your own efforts in the flesh will not be rewarded. But it's not a judgment of sin. It's a judgment of ministry, a judgment of works, or a judgment of what was accomplished during this church age in your life. And if you were available for the Spirit of God to pour His giftedness through and His power through, then you will be rewarded, and that, those rewards will be carried into the millennial kingdom. But that's what's going to happen to the church saints. That's what Jesus is talking to His disciples about. And so He's trying to give them understanding or give them information. And as we'll see as we get into this, rest of this chapter, when He talks about the role of the Holy Spirit that's coming to indwell them, this is prior to Pentecost. And so when He's talking about the Holy Spirit's ministry of coming to, to indwell them, he will say that when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, then you will have the power and the understanding to be my witnesses. So all the things he's teaching them now, 
they have the information, but they don't understand it correctly, and they don't understand it in depthly. But when the Spirit of God indwells them, then they will be remembering the things He taught, and the Spirit of God will be giving them the understanding of all that Jesus taught them at that time. Does that make sense? So they have the information, but they don't grasp it. Just like Thomas is saying, I don't understand that. And so then Jesus says in verse 7, as we begin our, our study today, he, he says in verse 7, he says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. Okay, Jesus is saying, you're my disciples. If you've known me in real terms, if you have a real relationship with me, you have a relationship with my Father also. Because if you've known me, then you know the Father and you're known of the Father. You can't have a relationship with me without knowing my Father and without knowing that He knows you and has entered into a relationship with you. So if you go to 1 John chapter 1, he, John is the writer of both of these books, and he says the same thing, and it gives us understanding of what he means by that in the First uh, John chapter one, the first three verses there. He says, "What was from the beginning, what we have heard." Now, this is John speaking as an apostle, as a disciple. So he's saying what we, as the disciples, experienced. Okay, so keep that in mind when when First John one one through three is. It's John speaking as one of the disciples, referring to the other disciples and him as, as having experienced this. What was from the beginning, what we have heard and what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and ha our hands handled concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Now when he says the eternal life, what's he speaking of? Who's he speaking of? Jesus. He is the one that was manifested to us. He is the eternal life. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. And that's what he's saying. So this eternal life, which was with the Father, he was with God, he was God, and he became man. He, the Word became flesh. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. And, and which was with the Father and was manifest to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, that you also may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. This word fellowship means participation. It means we have participated in eternal life that comes from the Father through Jesus Christ. And now if you have participated in our gospel message, if you have participated in the, the teaching that we've given and you have been brought into a living relationship with God because of that gospel message and been born of the Spirit of God, then your fellowship is just like ours. It is with the Father and with the Son. Okay, You can't have a fellowship with the Son without a fellowship with the Father. Now that's what John is teaching in 1 John, but to the disciples when they're first hearing this from Jesus, they're not sure they understand that. Because the question from Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me. Otherwise, believe on account of the works themselves. So here Jesus is saying that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. There is a oneness with me and the Father. So in our understanding, as we go back and remember what we taught in chapter 1 of John, 
and we look at this understanding of what is being taught to his disciples, Jesus is talking about the truth of the incarnation and the truth of the deity of Jesus Christ. So you remember what we shared. We, we, we go back to John chapter 1. In the beginning of this gospel, when we said in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being in Him was life, and the life was the light of man, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Then you go to chapter 14, and it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So here we have this understanding that John is writing in his gospel after the fact that he has seen Jesus in person, after the fact that Jesus has taught them, after the fact that Jesus has given us words describing that relationship with him and the Father. Now John is writing this afterwards in the gospel so we have an understanding, and he's including this first chapter of John so that we understand exactly what Jesus is talking about when he says, I and the Father are one. So basically what you have is this man, Jesus, is teaching his disciples. They're seeing him in his humanity. They're seeing a man standing before them. He is the man, Jesus. Now, the Word is God, and the Word always is God. The Word didn't come into being. The flesh came into being. You understand that? Jesus... The Word became the man Jesus. You understand? God is eternal. You have three persons that are God equally. Okay? you got the first person of the Trinity we call the Father, the second person of the Trinity we call the Son, and the third person of the Trinity we call the Holy Spirit. But in eternity... You have three persons equally God, all spirit beings, all deity, all having the same characteristics, all having the same omniscience, the same omnipotence, the same uh, knowledge, everything they have, they all are united together in their character, in their holiness, in their attributes. They're all God. All three, that is the Trinity that we talk about. Three persons of the Trinity. Now, at some point during the eternity of God, and we talk about eternity, we're not talking about time frame. You're not talking about going back forever and ever. You're talking about a sphere in which you have a different realm. It is eternal. It, there's no time frame. There's no time in, in eternity. It is a sphere of or, or just a, a continual presence. God is eternal in that He is always in the present. He's always without time. And in the midst of his eternity, he created time for man. So our history of humanity from the beginning of the six days of creation to the, 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 the new heaven, new earth, is a time frame within God's sphere of eternity. It's not outside of God's sphere of eternity. It is within God's sphere of eternity. And in God's sphere of eternity, the Word became flesh. And Jesus was born of Mary. And she named him Jesus because he was a man. 
And so when we talk about these, these understandings of this thing of, of how we, we, get, we get this, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In verse 17 of John chapter 1, it says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who was in the bosom of the Father has explained Him. The word begotten there is a word that we use that came forth from the Father. Now, there's a, some confusion about that, and, and it's been a topic of discussion throughout the church age about the eternality of the Son or about uh, the word begotten in dealing with the Son and was the Son always the Son or how that happened. The Word is always God. The Word became man. Okay? So in any time you're talking about the Son of God or the only begotten, you're talking about the incarnation. You're talking about God becoming something that He wasn't prior. Before the incarnation, God was always God, spirit being. He became man to identify with us. So Jesus is a man that is interacting with these disciples he is God, but they see Him as a man. And they know He's from God, and they know He's the Son of God, but they're still looking at Him as a man more so than looking at Him as God. And that would be natural, right? Because you're seeing Him. They're, walking, they're, interact, they're interacting with Him as a man. So He is only, the only begotten of the Father. It says there in verse 18, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Okay, so let's go to Hebrews chapter 1. And the, book of, the writer of the book of Hebrews is writing to Christian Jews who are trying to hold on to the law of Moses, trying to hold on to the Mosaic covenant as being important in their lives, even though Jesus has come and has fulfilled all of the aspects of the Old Testament law, the covenant of Moses, and now has introduced the Jews that there's going to be a future covenant with them when God is going to interact the new covenant with them at a different time. Okay, so that's what he, the whole writer of the book of Hebrews is trying to explain to Christian Jews they need to go forward with Christ. The Mosaic covenant has been brought to an end because it was a temporary covenant that was to provide um, a way, a means of the, of the nation being preserved and protected by God until the Messiah would come. Okay, So that was the whole point of the, book, the writer of the book of Hebrews is to explain to the Christian Jews why they needed to go on and get beyond the Mosaic Covenant and go on with Christ. And so here in, in Hebrews chapter 1, he says in verse 1, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the, pro, in the, in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom he also He made the world, he is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty high. Having become as much better than the angels, He has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did He ever say, Thou art My Son, today I have begotten Thee. And again, I will be a father to Him, He shall be a son to Me. And when He again brings the firstborn into the world, He says, And let all the angels of God worship him. So here he's talking about the Son, this man Jesus, who is the only begotten of the Father. He is the exact representation of all of the character and attributes of God. In other words, he came down to explain or to represent or to 
to demonstrate the attributes and the character of God Almighty. He is God, but in His manhood, He came to explain to men the Father. And so he represents the Father in all aspects. In every way, he represents the Father and is, is perfectly in line with all the, the, the attributes, the character, and everything else of God, even though he is limited in his deity because of his humanity. So he's, he can't function as God functions without the humanity in the fact that in his humanity he's not omnipresent, right? He's not everywhere at once. In his humanity, he is limited by being a man. God's not limited, but Jesus is limited in his humanity so that all aspects of the, of the Godhead are not demonstrated in his humanity. Now, in Colossians, Paul says the same thing in chapter 1 of Colossians. It says in, in verse um, 15, and he, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, and all things have been created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all of the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself. Okay, so here He is again. Jesus is the exact image of the Father. So in Jesus Christ, the man, we see the attributes of God. And that's what Jesus is saying. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You can't see the Father because He's Spirit. You'll never see the Father because He's Spirit. But if you've seen me and you know me and you have a relationship with me and you understand who I am and you understand all that I have done, then you have understood the characteristics, the nature, the attributes of the Father. Because they're exactly mine. I am God, but I am demonstrating God in a human form so that you can see me. And not only that, He's the firstborn from the dead, which means He is the firstfruits of the, the resurrection he is going to be the one that is in giving us resurrected life, and our glorified bodies are all tied to His resurrection. He's the firstborn, which means the firstfruits of many more to come. He, all of us will be resurrected who are in Christ, who have been born of God, who have a relationship with God. We're all going to be born again into the same type of resurrected body as this, this Jesus Christ who res was resurrected as the firstfruits or as the firstborn from the dead. Okay? Now go back to Hebrews chapter 2. To give further explanation to the fact that he had to become a man or we had no hope of eternity. In verse 9 of chapter 2 of Hebrews, but we do see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. Now, in verse 11, For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Now look down in verse 14. Since then the children share, in other words, his brethren, his men, the people of humanity that God has chosen before the foundation of the world, those human beings that God chose before the foundation of the world, He has come down to identify with them. Since then, the children, verse 14, 
Since then the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For surely he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. So therefore he, may, he had to be made, therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted and that he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So he had to be born, he had to become a man because he had to die. God cannot die, Jesus could die. He had to take on flesh so that he could die. Even though he had no sin, he died for our sin that God might be just in giving us eternal life because the payment for sin was made by a perfect sacrifice. And a, the second Adam, or the last Adam, that was representing us in perfectness, in perfect holiness, whereas Adam sinned and we were all placed under a curse, this last Adam did not sin and was sacrificed on our behalf to represent all those whom God had purposed to save from the beginning of creation. But he had to become a man to identify with man. He had to become a man to represent man. He had to become a man to be able to die for man. And then his death was accepted by God as the eternal payment for sin. And all those who are in Christ now are forgiven of their sins and granted a righteous standing with God because Jesus is righteous. And we are baptized into his death, and therefore we are also baptized into his life, his resurrected life. Any questions? That's who Jesus is. And that's what Jesus is trying to explain to them in John chapter 14 when he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father because I am representing the Father in every way. I am God. In fact, I am Father. What do you mean by that? We'll go back to Isaiah chapter 9. When you're talking about this child that we've given to you, what is his name? What is his name? Eternal Father. This child that would be given to you as a representative, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. So God, the Father, is in Jesus, the Son. They're equally God, and yet He has become a man to identify with humanity that He might be our representative before God and our righteousness before God and our eternal life that comes from Him to God. So, when John, Jesus is talking to them, he's trying to explain to them this relationship that they have with him gives them a relationship with the Father. Does, does that make sense? That's what he's saying. Okay? Now, this is what Jesus was teaching when he was teaching and the and to the apostles, I mean to the Pharisees and, and his disciples in John chapter 5 when he claims to be equal with God. Go back to John chapter 5. Remember, we, we went through this. But again, this was one of the first times when Jesus publicly stated the reality that he is equal with the Father. In verse chapter 5, verse 18, 
For this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus therefore answered and were saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the, God, the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him that you may marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even, as, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but has given all judgment to the Son, in order that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear shall live. For just as the Father has life in himself, so also, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself and he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Now, this is important that you understand this. God is not going to judge us as God. He is giving all judgment to the Son as the glorified man. Now, go all the way back. Go all the way back to the, to the, the garden. When God created Adam and Eve, and He created them as those, those two, but Adam had the the preeminent place, to be the ruler of this world, to exercise judgment and discernment and rulership over the created world. When Adam sinned, Satan usurped that dominion. God had given it to Adam. Adam listened to Satan, and he chose to sin against God. And Satan now is the god of this world because God gave Adam the dominion and Adam gave it over to Satan. Now just like Adam was under the supreme dominion of God, Satan is under the supreme dominion of God and God's going to use Satan for his own purposes to bring about his fulfillment. But his fulfillment is when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten, who is resurrected and is sitting at the right hand of the Father, and you go back to Hebrews chapter 2 there, and what does he say? Same thing that Peter said in his, his message at, uh, in chapter 3, in his second message. But here's what he says. Of it, verse 8, chapter, chapter 1. But of the Son, he says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom Thou hast loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God thy God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy companions. In verse 10, And thou, Lord, in the beginning didst lay the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thy hands. They will perish, but thou remainest, and they all will become old as a garment, and as a mantle thou shalt roll them up. As a garment they will also be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years will not come to the end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet? The whole point of the book of Revelation is to understand and see that this Lamb of God, this son or this descendant of David's throne, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, 
is in heaven, sitting at the right hand of the Father, and there's a scroll seal with seven seals, and the scroll is the right to rule the earth and to have judgment and dominion. It was given to Adam, and now this second representative of humanity, the second Adam came and did not succumb to the sin of Satan. He is going to come back to rule and to have judgment, and all authority and judgment has been given to this son of man, this second Adam, and it is in his humanity that he is going to judge and rule the earth and make judgments. It is not in his deities doing this. It's in his humanity as the righteous son of God that he's going to judge. And God has given to the Son of Man, to the, the, the man Jesus, who is resurrected and righteous and glorified, to this one he gave the right to rule and to make judgment and to judge the earth and to judge the great white throne judgment. So he's judging as the one who had been given dominion. So when he comes back at the second coming in Revelation 19, he comes back as the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he takes the devil, Satan, he takes him and he binds him into the pit so that during the reign on earth that demonstrates what Adam's reign should have been like, this Son of Man, the Son of God, will reign with a, with a perfect fist of iron and with a perfect righteousness, and he will rule and reign for a thousand years, and then that kingdom will be transported to the eternal order, and he will reign eternally as the righteous Son of God in his fleshly being, in his glorified flesh with the nail scars still in his hands. He will, he will reign forever and ever, not as God himself only, but as the Son of God, as the man, Jesus Christ. And that's the amazing thing, is that God has given to his Son, the man, Jesus, that is God, but he's also tied to humanity. He's given him the right to rule forever and ever and ever in his human form. Not in, not in his invisible God form, but in his, his, his human form, he's given the right to have dominion and reign forever and ever. And that's what he's talking about there. That this Son of God, this man Jesus, whom they're speaking with, is going to rule and reign forever because him and the Father are one. He is God but he's going to function forever as the Son of God. And he's going to have a glorified human body forever and ever. He didn't have that in eternity, but now in eternity present forward, he will always be a man, the God-man. So he's fully God, he's fully man, but he is functioning in his, his glorified manhood as God in the flesh, when he became flesh, he will always be flesh. Questions? Yes, we will be referring to the Father because in the, in the roles of the Trinity, you have the Spirit giving glory to the Son, causing people to worship the Son. You have the Son giving glory to the Father, having people to worship the Father and call upon the Father. So 
they're all equally God, but they have roles that they have developed in, in the creation and in the, the, the formation of the, the, the design to create. Now, God, you have to understand, before there was ever the thought or the, the mindset to create, God existed perfectly in himself with no need of anything. That's one of the attributes of God is he is self-existent without the need of anything. But God purposed to have angelic beings and human beings to enjoy him forever and ever. And to get to this point of eternity with elect angels and redeemed humanity, you had to have the framework of time and you had to have the second person trinity becoming a man. So all that was part of God's plan to get to an eternity with those created beings that he would worship and enjoy forever and ever. Okay. All right, let's go back to John chapter 14. So he's speaking to them, and... In other words, in verse 11, he said, Believe in me that I am the Father, and the, I am in the Father, and the Father in me. Otherwise, believe on account of the works themselves. Okay, you've seen, the, you've seen not only what I've said, and you've heard what I've said about me and the Father being equal, but you've seen what I've done, and that should have been enough for you to realize the power that is in me is from God and is God. Okay, so truly, and then verse 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I shall do, the works I do shall he do also, and the greater works than these shall he do, because I go to the Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now here he's speaking of the role of the disciples transferring from being taught as disciples of Jesus to their ministry as apostles in the foundation of the church. He's speaking of what's going to happen to them. Now, they're all going to depart. They're all going to flee, and they're all going to be scared, and they're going to run away. When they arrest Jesus, they're all going to hide and, and flee. And do, even during the crucifixion, they're, they're, they're cowering in the sidelines. Um, in fact, John is the only one that seems to come to the, the seems to be present at the crucifixion. But he's not speaking of what's going to happen in the immediate future of the next day or two. He's speaking about their role as the apostles that he is commissioning them. And in this role, he says, you are going to do greater works. Now, how could the apostles do greater works or the church do greater works than Jesus? Quantity. Quantity. Jesus, in his humanity, he humbled himself and limited himself to be in one place at one time. He could only minister to those he had contact with because he was limited by his human body the body of Christ that will be spread all over the world will not be limited in location because it will be the body of Christ scattered all over the world. And as the body goes forward into the world, they will do able to do ministry of Christ in everywhere that the body of Christ is. So the quantity of works, it's not that the church is going to do more powerful things than Jesus did. No, 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 no. The works he's talking about is the works of ministry are going to be greater because they're going to be over the whole world. The church is going to be spread out over the whole world. That's why it says, go ye into all the world. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Short time. 
and he only ministered to disciples for three years, and then, and then he's going to depart. And the key is what's going to come next when we talk about the role of the Spirit. But anyway, so even part of this thing about uh, prayer, when it says, whatever you ask in my name. Now, what does it mean to ask in Jesus' name? Right. It's not saying that if you'll tag on that phrase at the end of your prayer in Jesus' name, everything's going to be good. No, no. You only have access to come to God because of who you are in Christ. Your relationship to Jesus Christ is the only access that you have to God, both in righteousness and in petitions. You have no standing to go to God on your own. Your only standing is in Jesus Christ. So it's, it's, it's like that if you have a son and you tell your son that I will grant you whatever you want and I will grant the same thing to somebody that you give that approval to. So if someone says... They come to you and they said, your son said that I could get this from you and it's because of him and my relationship with him that you're going to do this. And, and then I would say, okay. Because I told my son that whatever you give to someone else or the, 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 the privilege you give to someone else to come to me and ask me for something, I'm going to grant it because of who you are. Not because of who, it's not because of who they are. It's because of who you are. So when we come to God and petition God, it is all because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. We have no access to God other than that. That's the same thing with salvation. That's the same thing. There's no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved in the name of Jesus. It is through the name of Jesus only that anyone has access to the righteousness of God or access to prayer and petitions of God. So when you come to God, you only come to God in the name of Jesus. It is in your relationship with Jesus that you have any access to God. So don't try to pray apart from being related to Jesus. It is not going to happen. And again, when he says that, that whatever you ask, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Again, you cannot ask for God of anything that would not be consistent with the person of Jesus Christ. A lot of people try to use God as a means to get what they want that has nothing to do with Jesus Christ. When he's talking about prayer here and answer prayer, it is in the person of Jesus Christ. You cannot pray outside of God and God's purpose and God's purposes and God's character and expect God to answer those prayers. When you come to God in the name of Jesus, you're coming in the truth and in the reality of Jesus and who he is and what he desires and what his accomplishments are. It's not about you. It's not what you can get. It's what you can accomplish in the name of Jesus. Because he's talking about the works. He's talking about the works you're going to do. So in the, in the context here, when you're asking Jesus, you're asking things that have to do with the outworking of the Spirit of God to accomplish the works of God that he just talked about. So when we're talking about asking God to accomplish the works, in our church here, we're asking God to accomplish the works of, of growing the church, of of teaching and training and, and, and causing people to grow in faith. Those are things we ask God for because it's in line with who Jesus Christ is. It's, it's in line with the works He's going to accomplish as the working of the church. And so that's what He's doing. And so then, in, in the next few verses, He talks about the means by which we have to do that is through the power of the Holy Spirit. So He says in verse 16, And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper, that He may be with you forever. 
Now, another helper, another comforter is the sense that I've been with you for three years. And when you needed something, you came to me. He's talking to his disciples. I've been there for you, but I'm going away. And what did he say? Let not your heart be troubled. So he starts out this passage by not let not your heart be troubled. I'm going away. But understand, I'm going away for a purpose. I'm going away to prepare a place for you in my father's house. And I'm not going to leave you without someone else to help you. In other words, I've been your help. You could rely on me. I've been there for you. Now I'm going to send you another comforter or another helper. And who is that? Verse 17, that is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not behold him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. So while Jesus is there, the spirit of God is working in their midst and the spirit of God is working with them. But when Jesus leaves, he says in in Acts chapter 1, what does he say? What was promised by John the Baptist. John the Baptist, when he was preaching about the coming of the Messiah, coming of Jesus, he said, the one that I am preparing you for is the one who's going to baptize you with the Spirit and with fire. And then when Jesus is meeting them right before he ascends into heaven in Acts chapter 1, verse 4, he says, gathering together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what this Father had promised, which he said, you have heard of from me, For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So, verse 8. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. So when did that happen? Ten days later. I mean, 40 days later. Is that right? Yeah, 40 days later, the Feast of Weeks was, was 50 days after the Feast of Passover, which was 40 days after Jesus ascended. They were in Jerusalem, and it was the Feast of Pentecost, and the Spirit of God came down in a very visible, very dramatic way to demonstrate that they were all now fully indwelled with the Spirit of God. And what did they do? They had power to stand up and declare. So Peter and the apostles stood up at Pentecost, and they had people from everywhere, all the regions around, come to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. They were there. They all had different languages, different dialects. And the, the apostles stood up and spoke in their different dialects. And they spoke the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of God. And they spoke with power and great authority. And everybody was amazed. The Pharisees were amazed. These unlearned men, these fishermen, these, who are these? They're standing up powerfully preaching the words of God. And the other people that were locals, they said they're speaking in unknown languages. They're speaking in language we don't understand. They must be drunk. Peter said, no. This is what Jesus spoke of that was going to come upon them. And so this baptism of the Holy Spirit is the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This is the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That never will happen in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you had the Spirit of God coming on different men at different times to do special works. So the prophets, David, different ones had the empowering of the Holy Spirit at different times. Samson, when he crushed the the pillars of the the arena and the whole thing came down and killed all those uh, Philistines, he was was filled with the, the Spirit of God at that time to do a special work. Now at Pentecost, the church is going to be baptized with the Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 
for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. And it, it has to do with the giftedness, the manifestation of the Spirit of God to do the work of the church. So we are all indwelled with the Spirit of God from this point on. And now the Spirit of God who is going to indwell these apostles is going to give them the power to be His witnesses throughout the world. And so one of the reasons why they were told to wait in Jerusalem until this happened is because they wouldn't be powered. They wouldn't have the power to overcome sin. They wouldn't have the power to demonstrate God's reality in them. They wouldn't have the power to do the things without the Spirit in them. And so they were told to wait into Jerusalem. But he says, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth, which the world cannot receive, it will be in you. And I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you, and after a little while, the world will behold me no more, but you will behold me because I live. You shall live also. In that day you shall know that I am in the Father, in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Now what he's saying to them is that when the Spirit of God comes upon you, you will understand what I'm saying now. When he says, I and the Father are one, and I am in the Father, and the Father's in me, and I'm going to my Father's house, and all these things he's telling them now, he says, when the Spirit of God comes upon you and indwells you, he will give you an unction, he will give you an understanding that you will now understand these words that I'm saying fully, and you will be able to lay the foundation, you'll be able to write the finished work of the, the Bible, the New Testament, you'll be able to lay the foundation for the church and lay down all the apostolic doctrines that are in place because you will have the understanding that I'm giving to you. At that time, when the Spirit of God comes upon you, you will recall all the things that I've said, and the Spirit of God will give you understanding of those things, and you will know them deep in your heart. And so as they know them, what we are doing now in the church, we are taking the Word of God that has been delivered to the prophets of Old Testament, to the apostles of the New Testament, and we're giving those words of God so that they may be planted deep in your heart, and the word of faith comes by hearing, that's in chapter, seven, uh, chapter 10 of Romans, verse 17. That word rima is the word there for word, and it is a word that accomplishes what its intent is. So as we teach and preach the word of God, the Spirit of God takes that Word of God and makes it true in your own heart and plants it deep in your heart, and then you are have the implanted Word, and out of that grows faith and understanding and growth. And those who are of faith grow by faith. So faith to faith. You, you're, you're, you're born of God and given the ability to believe, and then you have the Spirit of God in you that takes the truth of the Word of God, applies it to your heart, and it amplifies your faith, and it grows your faith, as you understand all the things that God has intended you to say. So the more you stay in the Word, the more the Spirit takes that Word and implants it deep in your heart, and the more you grow in that, and the more assurance you have that you are the children of God because of the Word of God that lives within you. And the Spirit of God makes that true and makes that happen to you. Okay, so the role of the Spirit then is going to be the functioning of the works that God has intended for the church through the foundational of the foundation of the apostles and then carried on through out church history in the functioning of local bodies as the Spirit of God gives gifts to do the work of the local churches. So it goes from the apostles and the, the evangelists, the, the, the ones that founded the early churches, to elders and pastor teachers, and then to the saints that are equipped by the pastor teachers continue to grow and do the works 
that God has called us to do as the church body. That's what Chris was talking about this morning. Is that is all a function of what Jesus promised through the coming of the Holy Spirit and that was carried out by the foundational members of the church, the apostles, and now it's been passed on to us. And we continue this work until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And when is that? Romans chapter 11. The Jews were the natural branches of the rich olive tree, which means the Jews were given the role to be God's representatives to the world. They were the ones that believed in the God of creation. They worshiped the Sabbath day because the God of creation rested on the Sabbath day. And they were to be different than the rest of the pagan uh, nations of the world in that they believed and served and worshiped the one true God. And they were supposed to represent to the nations the one true God. They rejected Jesus Christ and they were cut off. And the unnatural branches, the Gentiles, were grafted in to that role of declaring and, and giving forth the truth of eternal life that is in Jesus Christ. So the church was given the responsibility to declare and to give forth the truth of the Word of God until the church is complete. So when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, that means the exact number of those who were elect to be a part of the church saints, when that has happened, then the rapture will take place and the Jews will be grafted back in to the role as natural branches, their role to give forth the evidence and the proclamation of the means of eternal life, which is in Jesus Christ. And this will begin by the 144,000. They will be grafted in. They will be, they will be saved after the rapture of the church, and then they will be the first fruits of the remnant of, of Israel, and they will be grafted into that role again as God's messengers, as God's declarers of truth. So until that time comes, until the church is complete, and the church is taken up to meet the Lord in the air when He comes again. We have a job to do, and that is to be God's witnesses on earth, God's body doing the work of Christ throughout the world until He comes again. And we do that by the power of the Holy Spirit, who is now indwelling all of us as born-again believers. We are baptized with the Spirit of God, which means we, we who are we who have been baptized into Jesus' death at salvation through the new birth are now baptized with the Holy Spirit to do the work that He's called us to do. So you have to understand the terms. We talk about spirit baptism. In Romans chapter 6, we're baptized into His death, which means we are identified in His death on the cross for our sins, and we're identified with His resurrection and giving us new life. And so we're baptized into His death and resurrection, and now we are baptized with the Spirit of God. Everybody from... Adam to the last person in the kingdom age that is saved will be baptized into his death. But only the church saints at this time are baptized with the Spirit, which is the permanent dwelling of the Holy Spirit.